I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theatre writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Upoff-Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theatre in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 72 of Theater Forward. 72 and 22. All right. (laughs) In this episode, we are bringing you another installment in our The Plays That Stay series. Stories from theater artists about the productions that have really stuck with them over the years. We hope you'll enjoy these as much as we did. Greg Hoffman is a Chicago-based lighting designer with a long resume in theatrical and theme park lighting. His work has been seen across the country at theaters like the Alliance Theater, MCC in New York, Chicago Shakes, and Chicago's Drury Lane. Uh, He is one of our very favorite collaborators here at Forward, and he'll be lighting our upcoming world premiere production of the Madelinian Debate. Welcome, Greg. Hi, everybody. How we doing? Good. Excellent. So, yeah, you all are tasked me with sort of thinking of a particular production that I've seen that has stuck with me for a long time. Um, uh, as, as you know, that sometimes I end up being sort of grouchy about theater. And so I don't often see a lot of shows uh, that I'm not working on because I work on a lot. And I, as I always say, like your accountant doesn't do other people's taxes for free uh, other times of the year. But um I often think back to this show and in my mind, it happened a long time ago, but I just looked it up and it was only 2007 that I saw this production, but uh, it was a touring production of 12 Angry Men by Roundabout Theater. And I saw it back in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky with some friends, I assume when I was home for the holidays, I I was in the middle of grad school, so I'm not sure how I got home to see this, but it must've been right after uh, Christmas or something. Um, you know, pretty traditional uh, production of 12 Angry Men, but the subtlety of the lighting and the realism of the lighting is something that really stood out to me. Um, I do a lot of theme park stuff and I do a lot of flashy, fun things. And uh, and so when I do those sorts of things, like the, re- the reason that are something that's realistic and something that is um, natural really stands out to me is something that I, I just don't get to practice it that often. So seeing people who are very good at that from a design perspective is amazing and watching those subtle long light shifts and how they support the story and sort of ride with the action and the conflict in that particular play, of course, which is all about conflict, um, the pressure cooker of that room. Right. And how I just remember sitting in that theater and 100% believing that I'm in that room with them, right? There was, I mean, it was in the Palace Theater in Louisville, Kentucky, which is, um, uh, it, it's a very ornate theater. It's one of those like old vaudeville houses that has like a blue ceiling with fiber optic stars in the skies and, and Roman statues all around. And I never, like once we sat down and started watching the play, I never noticed any of that ever again. And I was in that tiny little room with the green walls um, with those, those guys, those 12 men for the entire play. Um, as I recall, like it started off like a little bit, you know, sort of warm in the room. And then as the play continued, just watching that subtle shifts throughout the whole thing that went with the, um, 
that went with the production was was wild to me. There's one particular point in that production. It happens like this in my head. Who knows if I went back and saw it, what it what it would be like. But but there's a point where there's a window at the end of the table, and there was a point where my body sitting in the audience got ready for it to rain. Like I just knew that it was going to rain. And then it, I, I, in my mind, I think it did rain outside. Like they had like a little rain, something outside the curtain, but the light coming through that window into that room was absolutely perfect. And it's one of those things that I've like, I don't know, I've tried to do it four or five times and I've gotten close, but I've never tricked myself. You know what I mean? Like I've never tricked my own body into thinking it was going to rain. Um, hilariously, I was trying to redo it sometime at an aquarium. One time <laughs> I was doing a, uh, I was lighting a piranha exhibit at an aquarium in New Jersey. And, uh, and they, uh, it, it was like a, a sequence or it would rain like every 30 minutes. And I tried to get it to do the exact thing of like the light coming through the trees and the thing. I was like, I know it can be done. Cause I saw it, <laughs> I saw it happen and I've gotten close, but I haven't quite, uh, been able to recreate that. So, um, that sort of thing is just really uh, what sticks out about my head. It's, it's like a, one of those goals to that of that particular production. You know, I don't even know who lit it. I could look it up, but I, I'm not even sure who did, lit that show. But whoever they did, I've been chasing you for years. So <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, yeah, so that's that's the story of that. And you know, it's a it's a play that I also love. It's like a classic sort of well in this in this uh, version, twelve people talking play as opposed to I normally say a two people talking play. But uh, 12 people talking play and just uh, it just really allows the theater part of it to go away and you just get pulled into the story. Right. Oh, Greg, listening to that story makes me feel like I want to only have designers do this from now on. <laughs> oh, <that's> <laughs> listening to that story makes me think that surely it should um, rain in the Madelinian debate. Oh, I've already told you that I can't, I've told you I haven't been able to do it. So I don't know. In every, in every show we work with you on Greg, that should be our goal. I think that's to have a rain scene. And I think somebody else needs to tell me whether it's working or not. That's the other (laughs) thing. Cause I think if I build it, I don't think I'll ever feel like it's working. Right. Oh, that's Um, fantastic. Yeah. It's interesting. It's just, uh, it's one of those things. And you know, Jen, you'll know about how grumpy and cantankerous I can be about things, but I think it is because I hi- I hold like the way things look to like a very high standard, and when it works that well, then then you know you're getting right in there, right? And I think that that is, uh, I think it's pretty magical when it works like that. It gives you, it gives you faith, right? Colleen Madden is an acclaimed actress on stage and in film and television. She works extensively throughout Southern Wisconsin as a core company member of American Players Theater on stages across Milwaukee and frequently here at Forward Theater. Colleen's also a playwright and she wrote the beautiful adaptation of A Christmas Carol that's been produced at Children's Theater of Madison for many years. And we are thrilled to hear her story. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you for having me. I have the great pleasure of actually getting to see all of you, although you're all two-dimensional, on my screen. Um, You know, this was a really fun uh, little exercise trying to really decide. Of course, I think probably every play I've ever done has really stuck with me. Um, But to think about the one that stuck with me was 
really difficult. Uh, a friend of mine once said that the characters you play are like children, your children. And you may have a favorite on a given day, of course, um, but you cannot really choose a favorite. But I was thinking about the moments that I really was able to uh, let go of the work and it, in moments and plays actually just exist in the character. And that's about as close to God as I can imagine uh, with my limited, limited imagination. Um, and often those women, they were women, I played animals and men and babies, but these were all women, um, tended to be the ones that I always felt if somebody on stage, if one of the other characters on stage with me would make a different decision, my life, this character's life would be wonderfully changed. And those tend to be, I, uh, you know, I think of the nurse in Romeo and Juliet. If, she, if the nurse or someone had made just a slightly different decision, it would be a very different play. And the sorrow that I imagine she lives with, uh, she wouldn't have to live with. And I, I think um, Georgie from uh, Heisenberg is up there, but I really think it's Beatrice in uh, A View from the Bridge. You know, she's, she works hard. She loves deeply. She trusts mightily. She trusts the men around her. She trusts the world that she lives in, even though it's always on the precipice of like falling over the abyss into total poverty. But she trusts the human beings in the room. And then when that begins to go awry and the person she trusts most sort of, be well, betrays her trust and betrays the world she believes in. I, I remember so much each night thinking, I hope somebody makes a different decision tonight. Yeah. And every now and then I would think maybe someone in the audience will say, wait, hold on now. Let's just talk about this, you know. Um, but I love there's something incredibly beautiful about the ache we are left with, whether we're watching or acting, of, of knowing that character is going to go on with a stone in her heart, you know. So I think that that's the one for me. Oh, it breaks my heart even just thinking about that. What a beautiful production that was. Mm. <laughs> the other one was, was really Heisenberg because I kept thinking I had the, a difference. My understanding of her, of Georgie, was that had something altered in her beginning, maybe her life wouldn't be so crazy now. Mm -hmm. So I always wanted to sort of go back in time and fix whatever happened to Georgie. But anyway, yeah. Now, Colleen, and I've, I'm on record with this a bunch of times. I mean, it's going to be one of my top five plays, I'm sure, till my dying day. But, but I mean, I fell in love with you as an actor at the very beginning on a September weekend, right before September 11th, mm -hmm. um, watching you play a character like that as Sonia um, in that long ago Uncle Vanya, which was the same thing. I mean, it's a different version of betrayal, but it's definitely a betrayal for somebody living in a world she never made. She's on my list. Yeah. <laughs> That's another so, one that's who, you know, I mean, we learned so much, we've learned so much more about victimhood, 
but it's really, I mean, those characters are really painted. Like we all know people like that who are just essentially really good people and want to do it just a simple job of just being existing as a, as a person who loves and they can't even have that. So Sonia was like that for me. I mean, good Lord, what a heartbreak. Her exuberant violin playing Ghost of Christmas Present and Colleen Madden's A Christmas Carol to her knockout performance as a vulnerable wife in Lauren Gunderson's Natural Shocks, rising star Jennifer Vosters commands attention on the stage. Forward audience may best remember her from a performance where she was not on this stage in a reading in her memorable embodiment of a lost and questing soul in our 2020 reading of Heidi Schreck's Grand Concourse. Jennifer is not only an actor and a musician, but a director, a teaching artist, and an essayist. Jennifer, welcome to Theater Forward. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and thank you for that beautiful intro. Wow. Um, my story, first of all, I definitely tend to bond very closely with a lot of the shows that I do. I just feel really fortunate that um, so much of the work I've been able to do in my short career has meant a lot to me. So thinking about what to talk about was tricky. Um, I thought about the first show I directed. I thought about the time when I played ACDC on the viola for a production of Macbeth. Um, that was pretty awesome. But I think I have to talk about Christmas Carol uh, because it has been so meaningful to me both times I've done it. Um, and I know it, it might be kind of a an eyebrow raiser because... You know, Christmas Carol, I totally get it. You know, everybody does it every single year. People, you know, do these crazy tracks, eight shows a week in this this performance. A lot of the audience doesn't see theater the rest of the year. But that's part of why I think it's meant a lot to me is that uh, it is the only play a lot of people see, maybe ever, and certainly the first play that a lot of people see. So I feel like that's a really big honor to be part of that tradition for folks. And even the nostalgia aside, um, I love the story. I always have. I grew up watching Muppet Christmas Carol, and it's not only like my favorite Christmas movie, it's just one of my favorite movies, like period. Um, it just the story grows with us every year and uh, the story of redemption and transformation i think is always always what we need um at the at the year's end in particular so when i did it in 2019 at children's theater of madison um directed by jim ridge colleen madden's gorgeous adaptation it was really coming at um a great time for me it felt like 2019 had been a really excellent year for me personally and professionally, I had checked off some dream theaters on my list, um, had worked the full year, didn't need a muggle job, as they say, which was the first time that I had been able to say that. And um, I felt like I was really finally starting to develop some confidence, which has really been the name of the game for me in this first five years of my career, just building confidence. Um, having to really power through a lot of insecurities. And in that performance back in 2019, um, I felt like I had to really confront a lot of those insecurities head on because here is this really popular, famous role that nobody was expecting somebody like me to perform, you know, young woman. Uh, 
I was in a cast with a lot of people that I really admired and really wanted to do a good job next to. And um, fortunately, Jim Ridge was the perfect director for me at that time, like really knew how to cut through some of my own nerves and anxieties and give me notes that I could really hear and really take and unlocked for me what really became uh, what felt like a transformative performance of, of really feeling like I could step into this larger than life character with boldness, with fun, with a sense of play, with a sense of rest and ease that up to that point, I felt like I was always just like kind of clawing my way into into feeling okay about what I was doing. But with that role, I felt like I could breathe into it. And um, it also came at a great time, what I didn't realize at the time, I uh, lost my beloved grandfather during tech for that show. And John Daly was playing Scrooge. And the way he played Scrooge at the end of the show was so much like how my grandfather had been uh, in, in, especially as a younger man. So full of laughter, so full of just the joy of the season, loving people, loving traditions, getting a kick out of things, open to being laughed at. Um, so that was something really healing for me personally, and I know for a lot of members of my family, to see that and be part of that show um, at that time. And I felt like it closed out the year in a really strong way for me. And it was kicking off what was going to be a really good year that uh, obviously we all know what happened in 2020, uh, lost all of the work that I had lined up, including A Christmas Carol. And I did not actually get back on stage in a full rehearsal performance setting until two years later when I did Christmas Carol again. So returning to that show, which had meant so much to me, was incredibly emotional. <laughs> I was um, I was really deeply joyful and grateful to be there. I was nervous because I knew that I could not be the same Christmas present that I had been before because I wasn't the same person anymore. Um, I was kind of very aware of all that it took for everybody in that room to be there and all the pain and loss that we have all gone through and that the audience will have gone through and how those things will prime us to hear these words and experience the togetherness in a really different way. And I was, uh, I was, I was nervous for myself. I was, I, I had spent two years kind of building up who I was outside of the theater, which I think was a really beautiful silver lining of the thing. I had found a lot of sense of groundedness and, and confidence away from the stage because I had to. And I was worried that I wouldn't be able to bring it onto the stage for a second time and, and have it be as meaningful of an experience as it had been. Um, but it was even more so I found, um, LaShawn Panks was Scrooge, which was just one of the great honors of my life was having scenes with him. I think he's one of the best actors I've ever seen and and can do anything. And so that f freed me up to try anything. And um, I had this gorgeous sort of updated version of the costume, which which 
made me feel powerful in my body in a way that um, I don't think I had felt very powerful in my body for two years. With being in a pandemic, I felt quite powerless, I think. But like being able to stand my full height. I'm six feet tall, by the way, for those who don't know. Um, and I love being tall, but sometimes it's not helpful on stage. But for this role, like I felt like I could bring my full height and my music and my goofiness and everything that I wanted to be and was I could bring to that role and to this production. So uh, along with the story just meaning so much to me, both of the times I've done it, Christmas Carol is just come at the right time. It's given me so much, I think, as a performer um, and as a teammate. And uh, I, I just feel sorry for those who have not had as positive of, a, of an experience with their Christmas Carol as I have, because it will always have a very special place in my heart, I think. Well, this story is a Christmas present. If I can be corny for a second. <laughs> Ba-dum-bum. Ba-dum-bum. Ah, wonderful. Wonderful. And how how great, you know, so rarely, except maybe for Christmas Carol, can actors repeat a role, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not the career. And, um, you know, to be able to do it and have, uh, uh, you know, a shutdown of the world in between those two performances. Yeah, it was very surreal. And and uh, I think you're totally right. Like returning. I've never returned to a role before. So that even even pandemic aside was going to be new. But um, certainly figuring out how to honor everything that has happened in between the two times we've done it, as opposed to ignoring it or pretending it didn't happen or trying to do exactly the same thing. Just, I knew right away that couldn't be done and it was I couldn't try um, and was able to find some really fun and cathartic things from not trying to ignore the two years that have passed. My very good friend Marie Kohler is a Milwaukee based playwright and director. We worked many years together at Renaissance Theatre Works, where she is the co-founder and served as co-artistic director from 1993 to 2012, and as the resident playwright from 1993 to 2020. Her plays have been performed all over, including her play Boswell, which was produced at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2019, and will be performed again later this year off-Broadway. Welcome, Marie. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. I've been jonesing to be asked to do this for ever since you started. It's always hard to figure out which one, but you know, it's the one that comes up to you first that probably is the one that needs to be honored in this way because there are so many plays that have made a big impact in my life, uh, not only theatrically, but also uh, personally. Um, but of all of those plays, the one that I think I owe the largest debt to is Cloud Nine by Carol Churchill off Broadway in New York. And I think it, I know it opened there in 1981 <clears throat> and ran till 83. I'm guessing I probably saw it in 82 or three, I'm not sure which, but it was revolutionary for me. Um, First of all, just in minor, relatively minor, like theatrical terms, I've never seen anything like 
Carol Churchill's play. Um, everything was sideways and upside down and in your face and illogical, but somehow so logical at the same time. She was such is, but in that era in particular, in particular, Carol Churchill was such a groundbreaking playwright. Um, she was the first playwright that I can remember that had an entirely different um, way of presenting act two than the way she presented act one. Other playwrights have done that a lot since then, but um, I, you know, you didn't know where you were. The play starts in South Africa, colonial South Africa in Victorian times, or Edwardian times. And in act two, you are in a park in London in 1980 with the same actors and the same characters, but, but just inside out. She talked about the, the, the politics of gender, of sexuality in that first act we are in South Africa with a man playing a woman, a woman playing a man, um, an adult playing a child. And it, it's, it's the same kind of deal in act two. And she draws this incredibly clear parallel between uh, the politics of gender and the politics of power, particularly colonialism. So she takes on how you know the the relationship between men and women in South Africa is extremely parallel to the relationship between Britain and its colony in South Africa, um, and you see that play out during that act, and then in Act Two, you see these people in a much more contemporary framework, but they're still they're still dealing with the aftermath or the current blowback of those power structures. Um, so that's the that's what hit me like intellectually and and theoretically. But then personally, I was 31 years old, say, I was at a point in my life which was very much a seesaw in, in terms of where I was going and who I was. I had spent my 20s after college, I had spent my 20s raising two little girls, which I loved, but I felt very landlocked in my life professionally. And I was ex experiencing quite a lot of anxiety. And when I saw this play that dealt with sexual role models and with um, the, the after effects of that, I, I, my head was just absolutely spinning. I took it entirely to heart. I took it totally personally. And I left that theater thinking, okay, all right, I'm on the road to some real changes here. And um, I think Carol Churchill did that for the theater world. I think she was incredibly uh, important. But for me at that point in my life, it was groundbreaking. Um, tough and scary, but like, okay, you've got to forge ahead. And then the crazy thing was about a year after that, Sharon McQueen, who was the founder of, uh, the co-founder of um, Clavis Theater with Neil Bernard, and then later the founder of Theater Tesseract. Anyway, at that point, it was Clavis, called me 
I have it absolutely clear as a bell in my mind. I picked up the phone in the kitchen, of course, and Sharon said, someone has dropped out of our production of Cloud Nine. Do you want to play Betty and Mrs. Saunders? I'm like, what? I have two children. I can't do that. And then I thought quietly, beat, beat. Yes, please. Yes, I will do that. And that was uh, the beginning of my professional theater career. So it's extremely uh, potent for me. And then I played it. And uh, I played Mrs. Saunders, who's this kind of uh, sexy, but very traditional woman who wears a riding suit and has a whip that she makes use of. <laughs> and then in act two, I played Betty, who was this kind of lost middle-aged woman who can't take a walk in the park without thinking she's gonna fall over from dizziness. And she says, it tips, the ground tips. And that was kind of me, only I was, I was 31 instead of 51, which is what Betty really should have been. Um, so I played that role. I felt like my life had changed and opened up in wonderful ways. And uh, then I became involved in theater quite, quite intensely with Theater Tesseract. And uh, after Theater Tesseract, this band of women for Renaissance Theater Works um, took me in their arms. And um, the rest is kind of history. I worked there for 20 years and now I'm doing stuff on my own. So yeah. Theater can make a difference. And that, that play made a huge difference for me. We have talked about Karen Churchill in our, in our, our kind of smaller group. I know that Mike mm -hmm. is a huge fan, as am I. And yeah, Marie, she really did change. You, you, can, you can see so many modern day plays that harken yeah. back to yeah. her. Even Kushner, who was so revolutionary in the 90s, did you know, did that similar thing and mm -hmm. um, created characters that were kind of half fantasy, half um, half uh, in your face, real. I, I think I think she's enormously influential um, and not easy. Um, right. You know, these split act plays are are hard to wrap your head around, but there's always a point to it, and. Um, I, I just admire her enormously. I didn't know you were a fan, Mike. Yeah, oh, I've said on this podcast, and I'm in print, as having said, she's our greatest <laughs> living playwright. I mean, I, there's no doubt in my mind. And that play in particular, coming at that enormously productive period yeah. for here, she's not just taking, I mean, she's bending gender in ways nobody was doing then, but but, but race too, to have a white man play, oh, play yeah. a black man to talk about the yeah. dynamics uh, in that play. Right. It's, she's, and, and she continues. That's what blows me away, right? I mean, she continues to do incredible work. No Carol Churchill play is like any other Carol Churchill play. And I can't say that of too many oh, plays. Each, each one is different. Each one, it, it tackles something else. But feminism is always at the core of it. Politics is always a, at the heart of it. She's just, a, she was so brave. She's just amazing. And, and as she's gone on, the plays have become more and more and more kind of distilled. And perhaps less accessible to uh, an audience that's not super experienced or educated in 
in theater history, but um, still worth it. And if you're going to start a professional career, Marie Churchill is, um, a, you know, a good, good step. Good. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. I didn't realize that that was sort of oh, the yeah. beginning. Harold yeah. Churchill and I uh, <laughs> oh, way back. Did anyone, Marie, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I loved every, every part of that story. Thank you good. for sharing it with us, all you're the welcome. different aspects of it. It's, um, it's, you know, sometimes theater affects you really personally. For, in my life anyway. Um, I love it so much. It means so much to me. And I've been seeing it since I was a child because my mother was a theater person and dragged us to everything she could. But sometimes they really just, uh, they really get you. They and stay. They stay. <laughs> the play that stays, yes. Thank you. Exactly. Thanks for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. That is it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you and all of our guests so much for joining us. I'm Jen Upoff-Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast number 72, like podcasts one through 71, is produced by Scott Hayden. Uh, you can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook uh, and Twitter. That's it, Theater Forward as always, with an ER for theater, folks. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. And please be sure to leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. We're so grateful to have you listening. And we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.